Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Recently, I began writing a series of essays on trends in Christianity, their context in Christian history, and the reaction from Christian traditionalists. My goal was to partially, of course, give my two cents to where I thought there may be some problems with the new directions and the original road from which they are deviating. Also, I sometimes found myself instinctively feeling that certain beliefs on both sides were problematic, though I wasn't sure why. So it's been a personal exploration and education for myself as well. What's pitiful is that considering that Christianity is supposed to be a religion of loving one's neighbor as oneself, loving your enemy, returning good for evil, etc., these divides are causing many on both sides to throw all that out in the spirit of being right or calling a spade a spade. No doubt there are pernicious forces at work. Emotions run deep, especially when one is trying to live faithful to one's conscience. And so it's all understandable. And yet, the devil must be pretty proud of himself that the house of his enemy is as divided as it is. So, I'm presenting my essays here on the podcast while inviting folks from both sides to give their take on this whole phenomenon. I'm hoping they can either tell me I'm wrong when I'm wrong, or help me understand at least why they've landed theologically where they've landed. So, I'm going to read this first piece, and afterwards we'll get some commentary from a friend of mine. That to which we are tethered. The quote. A few months ago, a devout fellow Christian I know posted on a social media platform this musing from Friar Richard Rohr. Quote, if God is always mystery, then God is always in some way the unfamiliar, beyond what we're used to, beyond our comfort zone, beyond what we can explain or understand. Unquote. It initially seemed to me like something a cryptic desert mystic or someone smarter than me probably said, and something that I should just probably agree with. At least I'd be embarrassed by admitting my stupidity, or bloodied by my wandering into an intellectual tangle by challenging a notion I wasn't qualified to question. But something about the quote stuck in my craw and wouldn't let me be. So I did some searching and found the handful of paragraphs from which the quote was extracted. Quote, it takes a long time for us to allow God to be who God really is. Our natural egocentricity wants to make God into what we want God to be. The role of prophets and good theology is to keep people free for God and to keep God free for people. While there are some, quote, pure of heart people, see Matthew 5, 8, who come to, quote, see God, naturally and easily most of us need lots of help. If God is always mystery, then God is always in some way the unfamiliar, beyond what we're used to, beyond our comfort zone, beyond what we can explain or understand. In the 4th century, St. Augustine said, quote, If you comprehend it, it is not God, unquote. Would you respect a God you could comprehend? And yet very often we want a God who reflects and even confirms our culture, our biases, our economic, political, and security systems, unquote. Within this context, Rohr's sentiment makes a little more sense. For sure, we Christians, at our worst, often attempt to recreate God into the guy we would like him to be. Or as Brennan Manning was famous for saying, quote, We make God in our own image, and he winds up being as fussy and rude and narrow-minded, judgmental and legalistic and unloving and unforgiving as we are, unquote. 
But if we, in an attempt to not misrecreate God, we keep him always a mystery, then nothing we think we know about God can ever be a certainty. God created the world, presumably, but in the realm of mystery that won't allow us to commit to concrete affirmations, all assumptions are suspect. God hears our prayers, hopefully, but maybe they're just a psychological exercise that, while is good for our humility and makes us feel better, aren't actually heard by anyone beyond ourselves because can it always mystery really have ears? God is love? Well, I mean, that's the one thing that even the most hipster, anti-establishment, progressive Christian would still give a thumbs up to. But if he, as Rohr asserts, must always remain an unfamiliar mystery, then we really can't be sure of that even. When I embraced Rohr's assertion as a certain possibility, I felt a terrible frustration akin to a childhood trauma I had of trying to assemble a tent only to have it collapse down on me when I got into it. An image deconstructionist Christians will be sure to say they tried to warn me about. From there, the feeling grew into helplessness and then an eventual glowing hot fury in my mind until I think for once in my life, I knew what it was like to be offended. I eventually chilled out, rolled my eyes at myself, and kept in mind that Rohr maybe just carelessly made the statement without thinking through his choice of words. Surely anyone who seeks God as Roar so publicly has can't think the effort is akin to walking towards one destination, only to have someone come along and say, yeah, you think you're getting closer, but in fact you're now getting further away. Riding shotgun with always mystery. Regardless of whether Rohr's proverb was a statement made in haste or not, let's look at why it, as it is worded, is problematic. And the quote again, If God is always mystery, then God is always in some way the unfamiliar, beyond what we're used to, beyond our comfort zone, beyond what we can explain or understand. Unquote. First, anyone making this statement would have to sentence themselves to silence forever. Nobody can really make any assertions about something that is always a mystery. It's like saying, I have no idea what's in the next room, but I do know it's not what you think it is, and I know it wants me to tell you to not figure out what it is or you'll ruin everything. How do I know all this? Well, that's my secret, of which even I, in theory, don't know why I know, but I know it anyway. Hey, quit using my words against me. It's super annoying and judgy. To make the statement at all that we must always keep God a mystery betrays that you think you know at least one thing about God that is not a mystery, in that he is always a mystery. And those who can't or won't explain why they know that God is a complete mystery begin to look like the Gnostics from the early days of Christianity, some of which held that there was a general knowledge available to the masses, but then a secret higher knowledge only available to a few trusted elite. At least the Gnostics believed something about God could be known, albeit dependent on one's initiation level. But going with the always unknowable God, if we continue to believe in something so unbelievable, we at least would have some company in our quiet game quarantine, notably the uber-cool strand of nihilists who say they believe in nothing, except nothing, of course. It must be noted that comprehension must also be chief among these brand of nihilists, disbeliefs, given most of them don't seem to understand the true argument of nihilism, actually. Sure, maybe we, as nihilistic mystery huggers, couldn't make any more sweeping public proclamations, but with our new philosophical comrades, the nihilists, being uninhibited by any belief and thus any caution, 
We could live out our days without any existential crisis stress and do anything we've ever wanted to do until we're numb or prematurely dead from smoking crack while driving the stolen tractor trailer into a daycare center because we don't believe in caution or physics or the sound of screaming children and can't know whether God wanted us to act in any other way. This all may seem like mocking hyperbole, but this ridiculous logical consequence possibility is why the Western philosophical and ethical world came to value reason and ration. Though those who make an idol out of these traits would bring upon the world their own set of troubles, reason and ration were thought to be a gift of God's to stay the hand of interpreting scripture or law on its face value without common sense or an appreciation for metaphor or poetry. To borrow from Justin Martyr, a second century Christian apologist, quote, For not only does sound reason direct us to refuse the guidance of those who did or taught anything wrong, but it is incumbent on the lover of truth, by all means, and if death be threatened, even before his own life, to choose to do and say what is right, unquote. And that's from the first apology. Thus, when Jesus said in Mark 16, 18, that believers would be able to, quote, pick up snakes with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them, unquote, reason lets us suppose that he wasn't encouraging us to boogie down in a snake pit while guzzling away a six-pack of liquid rat poison. But if I'm mistaken, let's correct this right now. Swing through the hardware store on the way to the zoo and test our faith together. You go first. So out of curiosity, does Roar follow the logical consequences of a statement? Nope. Roar continues to talk and talk and make other assertions about the God of which no assertions can be made if he is always a mystery, having done so with three additional books beyond the one from which this quote is taken, which is called A Spring Within Us. So maybe that's not what Roar meant, but for the time being, let's go with what he wrote, regardless of intent. So why does God or religion even bother? Another problem that follows, that if God is always a mystery, then so is what he wants of us. It means all of Judaism and Christianity was and is pointless. Why would God reveal partial aspects of himself to Abraham, Moses, or any number of the prophets? Because why would a being that must be a complete mystery bother sending a messenger if he didn't want to clear up at least a few points of his mysterious nature? And what of the other religions, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., in which Rohr claims in other writings that Christ exists at some level? Also a big fat waste of time that keeps people from having more fun than they otherwise would. So why would Rohr, a Franciscan friar ordained by the Catholic Church, the mother of all creeds, canons, and orthodoxy, make such a proclamation? Well, he's a particular kind of Catholic, he says. It is said that Rohr is of the orthoproxy, or alternative orthodoxy belief, which emphasizes actual practice over belief, ritual, and grace. The friar even values personal experience over scripture. This might explain why one of Rohr's repeated themes is that we mainstream Christians have lost the ability to live within mystery and have strayed from the faith and practices of the early church fathers. Some of these Christians of the first three centuries in particular separated themselves away from their societies, culture, and material comforts to live in nearly perpetual prayer and meditation. These monks, as they came to be known, were highly revered and many seekers traveled to their caves, wildernesses, and other rough-hewn homes to receive their counsel. Rohr observes, quote, The desert tradition preceded the emergence of systematic theology and the formalization of doctrine. Faith was first a lifestyle before it was a belief system, unquote. 
There is some truth to what Rohr implies in that many of these individuals emphasize the practice over the words. And this is from the sayings of the fathers. Quote, Abba Theophilus, the archbishop, came to Scritus one day. The brethren who were assembled said to Abba Pombo, Say something to the archbishop so that he may be edified. The old man said to him, If he is not edified by my silence, he will not be edified by my speech. Unquote. But some of these self-separatists seem to have missed the point of Christian community or God's coming down to be among us via his Son. Consider a saying attributed to Anthony the Great. Quote, Monks who leave their cells or see the company of others lose their peace like the fish out of water loses its life. Unquote. That aside, these believers weren't out in the harsh elements for their health. They were seeking answers to questions, clearing up the mysteries of God, you might even say. One example is a story from the Desert Fathers where one old man couldn't understand how the church taught that the bread and wine served during communion were actually the flesh and blood of Christ. Quote, And so they said, Let us pray about this mystery throughout the whole of this week, and we believe that God will reveal it to us. The old man received this saying with joy, and he prayed these words, Lord, you know it's not through malice that I don't believe, and so that I may not err through ignorance, reveal this mystery to me. The monks returned to their cells, and they also prayed to God, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, reveal this mystery to the old man, that he may believe and not lose his reward. God heard both their prayers. The old man has a bizarre vision during his next participation in communion where the bread is transformed into a child and an angel cuts up the kid with a sword, pouring his blood into the cups. Eventually the child turns back into bread, at which the old man said in understanding, quote, God knows human nature and that man cannot eat raw flesh, and that is why he has changed his body into bread and his blood into wine for those who receive it in faith, unquote. The point is that the Desert Fathers did not regard God as always a mystery, and in fact had a lot to say about our Creator, and were eager to discover more, especially if they involved more mind-tripping special effects. Rohr does make another truthful point, in that there's a wealth of history, wisdom, and traditions that the modern Western Church has sadly forgotten, or barely knew in the first place. Can you cough up the name of any of the early great Christians outside of the Bible? When's the last time you heard your pastor read from the sayings of Polycarp or Irenaeus? Spend much time in contemplative prayer or meditation? And it's a pity because not only were these early Christians closer than our own to the generation that knew and walked with Christ, but many were persecuted and died horribly, displaying more courage than we in civilized cultures with our freedom of religion, a guarantee at birth, will never have to put to the test. But the trouble for Roar is that generations before the Desert Fathers not only commented on the knowable God, but proclaimed doctrines and theologies. The aforementioned Justin Martyr, in an appeal to the Roman Emperor Antonius Pius to stop persecuting the church, attempted to explain who Christians were and why they believed and behaved in the manner in which they did. Quote, in the beginning he made the human race with the power of thought and of choosing the truth and of doing right so that all men are without excuse before God, for they have been born rational and contemplative. And if any one disbelieves that God cares for these things, he will thereby either insinuate that God does not exist, or he will assert that though he exists, he delights in vice or exists like a stone, and that neither virtue nor vice are anything, but only in the opinion of men these things are reckoned good or evil. And this is the greatest profanity and wickedness. That's also from the first apology. As you can probably anticipate by the name he is known to us as, 
Justin's explanation failed to impress the emperor, and he was brutally assisted in kicking the bucket, along with some of his students. Nonetheless, this church father's first apology and other writings that survived, while admitting there were mysteries not fully grasped, were also drenched in doctrine, theology, and observances on the ways of God. I will be who I will be. So while it's ignorant or insane, and I'm thinking heretical, to hold that God must always be a mystery, to be sure, with our finite mortal minds, our comprehension of God must always be incomplete. He is God, and we are merely His created, after all. Considering the gulf of knowledge and difference in experience between human parents and their children, one can only guess at what the enormous amount of ignorance we mortals must possess in comparison to the one who made it all. God's name, as given to Moses, is Yahweh, which literally means I am, or, as it is sometimes translated, I will be who I will be. This is in contrast to earlier and other names, which all speak of an attribute or locality of God. El Elon and El Shaddai, meaning highest God or mightiest God. El Bethel, God of Bethel. El Royi, God who sees. El Barif, God of the covenant, are just some of the names of God used in the Torah that give some glimpses into his nature, but not entirely. I am is an even greater contrast to the pagan gods of the ancient world that had specific reigns or powers. Baal was the god of fertility, weather and war, Mot of death, Moloch, fire, Yam, oceans and rivers. Not only did these gods have limited jurisdictions, but if one were able to please or manipulate these particular gods, with sacrifices, they might help you out. Yahweh was different in that his way was his way, he not being a fickle, aloof, or moody God, whom was so busy or distracted by his own affairs or pursuits of pleasure that those who wanted his attention had to work or kill via sacrifices for it. And thus Yahweh is the name that can't really be pinned down or boxed in, connoting a prerogative of God not to be entirely comprehended, predicted, or manipulated. Quote, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Unquote. That's from Isaiah 55, 8-9. So yes, it's true, God moves in mysterious ways, as the William Cowper hymn goes, but not completely mysterious ways. If Jesus, the prophets, the writers of Scripture, and any number of the folks who prayed to Him have any credibility on the matter... always a mystery as practiced by Rohr. Initially, one could give Rohr the benefit of the doubt by his inclusion of the simple if at the beginning of his statement, in that maybe he's just throwing the concept out there as a possibility or a mental exercise. But he neither says that implicitly or invites one to come back with me with your own thoughts. Also, when examining Mr. Rohr's body of work, one finds the continued theme of unknowing and mystery as the highest form of wisdom. According to Reverend Bryce Sibley, who has studied Rohr's work pretty exhaustively, Rohr has a habit of knocking, quote, those who search for answers in religion instead of being willing 
to put themselves into a liminal space deprived of answers. And that's from an essay called The Friar Richard Rohr Phenomenon. Rohr explains why he thinks it's folly for us to be seeking conclusions with, quote, those who demand certitude out of life will insist on it even if it doesn't fit the facts. Logic has nothing to do with it. Truth has nothing to do with it. Don't bother me with the truth. I've already come to my conclusions. If you need certitude, you will surround yourself with conclusions, unquote. And that's from Welcome, Darkness, and Mystery. We could spend another gaggle of pages on the where that last sentence must lead if we follow it to its logical conclusion, but it's more or less ground we've already tread by allowing always a mystery to take the wheel. Sibley observes that within his books and speeches, Rohr has at least a need to proclaim the certitude that those who have traditional or politically conservative views on anything from scripture to abortion are getting it wrong and are worrying about issues that aren't as important as other concerns addressed by Jesus. The friar encourages us to renounce looking for hard, correct answers in life and instead, quote, go deep in one place and let your God lead you to a place of surrender, love, and humility, unquote. Amen to that last part, but dang, if only Richard followed his own advice. The Dogma Dogging Dogmatist And this is from Richard Rohr's The New Fundamentals are a contradiction in terms. Quote, When you lose the great mystical level of religion, you always become moralistic about this or that as a cheap substitute. It gives you a false sense of being on higher spiritual ground than others. Unquote. Rohr shuns certainty so much he's compared it to the evil that the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden unleashed on humanity. And so, yeah... According to Rohr, if you seek to understand what is certainly good or evil, you are, in effect, seeking out serpents for your information. No doubt, as the author of Ecclesiastes observes, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And that's from Ecclesiastes 1.18. But I can tell you firsthand that being an idiot can cause one a heap of suffering as well. And does this pursuit of understanding and the sadness it can cause necessitate that it is an act of rebellion against God on par with Adam and Eve's initial disobedience? Are we to ignore the Psalms 111.2 that says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, One of the, I think, valid criticisms Rohr and others have of Christianity post-Constantine is that the church, with its orthodoxy, creeds, hierarchy, etc., has at times reinstituted what Jesus seemed to undo, the cold, graceless structuralism and legalism so famously typified by the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, etc. The Vatican, one could argue, is the resurrection of the Holy Temple of Jerusalem and a physical embodiment of Christianity as empire. Now, I'm not a social justice warrior advocating that we should burn it down to make way for a community kale garden, but I will say that when you walk into the place, humility and servanthood aren't the first words that come to mind. And one could make the same accusation of those preaching the words of the vagabond Son of God with an authoritarian, uncompassionate, and arrogant thunder. Yet fallen into the all-too-common pattern of humans, which we could call the animal farm effect, Rohr's constant dismissing of the certainty seekers, including that found in Scripture itself, 
as those unable to open themselves to the true God in the mystery, is in itself a dogma and a major mission of those enlightened minds like himself. Rohr's version of Christianity is the real or original, and all other approaches are that of charlatans. If all regarding God was always a mystery, one would think someone making this claim would allow others to obey God according to their own understanding, a la working out one's own salvation. But no, Rohr has strong words for those with that magnanimous approach. Quote, One of the most common misunderstandings of non-dual or contemplative thinking, especially among progressive and earnestly spiritual people, is that it disqualifies any making of distinctions, all needed judgments, and even criticism of anything. This cannot be true, nor is it true. Mystical thinking is not a kind of naivete or avoidance of creative tension, but in fact, an allowing of that very tension to enlighten us and move us to a higher, deeper, and broader level. First, we have to name the problem truthfully before we can give it any kind of third force or graced, compassionate response, unquote. And that is from, all criticism is not scapegoating. We'll get to progressive Christians in the next essay, but the one thing they seem not to lack is a propensity for calling out traditional Christians on how wrong they are or how God will judge them. Candlelight and the Bible Black Knight. When I was younger, full of zeal and self-righteousness, I was quick to give answers to every question, even if my offerings were uneducated guesses at best. After being justly embarrassed enough times, I began to be a little more cautious and craft my sentences with, well, from what I understand, or in my experience. But as I got a little older and a lot burned out and disappointed at my own moral failings, I began to wonder... What could I possibly know about anything, given my personal missteps and the disgust I felt for others who, well, just like the young me, seemed to have an answer for everything? I fell into lazily shrugging off the great inquiries with, eh, who knows. I reveled in statements like Socrates's, quote, the one thing I know is that I know nothing, unquote. And Donald Rumsfeld's, quote, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns, that is to say, We know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know, I still believe these statements have some truth in them and are valuable for our maintaining some humility. But we must also admit that an unwillingness to commit can lead to complacency, which can be just as detrimental as giving ill-informed answers or just emotional oral gestations. In the world of science, a field most of us have, or should have, great respect for, even as one answered question unlocks countless others, the great minds announce and celebrate the discovered certainties. Only those who stubbornly refuse to rise up out of their wheelchairs of agnosticism would ever sneer at their findings, which is not the same as questioning faulty conclusions. If we remain perpetually in states of mystery or deconstruction, We hide behind the safety of never having to make any stands on anything. We joining the Linguini spine politicians, careful not to make any statements of consequence, or the neutrality declaring nations who end up becoming service roads for genocidal maniacs. To be sure, if one does not truly know, one should not pretend they do. This is bearing false witness. But if we do know and we just play it safe for the sake of politeness or out of fear of being mocked, we could be joining the ineffective lukewarm Jesus said he would spit out. In our presentations of what we find to be certainties, 
We should always temper them with humility, remembering that the truths themselves are greater than we are, and there's always a possibility that we might be partially or completely wrong. We should remember that when we were subscribing to some foolish notions or were still not sure where we stood, some big mouth know-it-all with books crammed in every pocket trying to guilt us into their own conclusions probably only pushed us further from their truths. That said, if we have proclaimed loudly a belief that we eventually come to see as incorrect, we should just as loudly present the new truth along with our admission of error. Former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass had fervently argued publicly that the U.S. Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Upon further study of both the document itself and the historical facts surrounding its creation, Douglass came to the conclusion that he had been mistaken. But reversing his stance was not just something that meant internal changes, but external consequences in that many of his supporters and those who had given him a voice, namely the abolitionist movement, would not take kindly to the deviation from their orthodoxy. Still, the intellectual giant went through with the reversal, prefacing his public correction by stating these humble, wonderful words, quote, The only truly consistent man is he who will, for the sake of being right today, contradict what he said wrong yesterday, unquote. Douglas's capitulation caused for him the dreaded consequences, the chief among them making an enemy out of his mentor and father figure, William Lloyd Garrison. In closing, it must be said that I've been edified by some of Richard Rohr's insight, and am grateful for how some of what he has said has helped me personally. Still, we shouldn't make men into idols, and we must always keep in mind that we are all infallible, no matter how many books we sold. I heard some Christians discussing recently about how it is some individuals start out as earnest, great agents of God, but somewhere along the way either become bewildered by delusions of their own importance or simply lose their way. Roar's name came up as possibly one among them, but I hope that's not the final chapter. One of my favorite quotes of Roar's is, The past is prologue. If we take him at his word, the friar is still seeking out which is actually the correct path to be on. And I empathize with his predicament. Like Frederick Douglass, if Rohr were to one day discover that he may have preached to his audience an error, it would be a more difficult about-face than most of us who live our lives out of the public eye may not appreciate. If we Joe Sixpacks held some belief that we've only shared with close friends or no one at all, it's not that difficult to one day up and say, eh, you know what I said last week about since dualism isn't real, that rowboats should be able to also float in the air? Well, your kids launched themselves off a skyscraper in a canoe, and I see now that I was wrong. I'm a dummy, and I'm sorry I said that you were one. We can just move on and chuck up our error to a hard lesson learned. We haven't made our name or living promoting certain ideas. Roar and other high-profilers are in a more stickier situation, finding themselves surrounded by thousands or millions of folks who have come to admire or depend on them for their particular message. Most of those admirers, I would wager, wouldn't continue to follow Roar into a different direction if the friar came out as against his own earlier message. That method of performance in jazz music, where if you play a bum note, you just keep playing it over and over so people think you meant to play it, which will make them think that you're somehow making some game change and innovation, really doesn't work in the arena of eternal truths. Now, it's pretty presumptuous of myself to suggest that Roar is even thinking about backpedaling on anything he said, but it's something I wonder what I would do if I were in his moccasins. So my only humble advice to Mr. Roar is that until he's found what he's looking for, or not found what he's not looking for, if you prefer, 
he's shooting grouse at the rest of us, who are also seeking, and occasionally unlocking a few mysteries from time to time. You'll now hear a conversation between myself and David Ezra in light of everything I've been going on about. David was raised in the church. In fact, his father was the minister, but at least at the moment, he sees himself as an agnostic. When I actually get around to letting him speak, David's got some pretty good insight, I think. First of all, how do you know Richard Rohr? My introduction to him is through another podcast uh, from Pete Holmes. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's a stand-up comedian. And I know his stand-up okay. I mean, I've heard it, but I know him from this podcast that he did, which was called You Made It Weird. It's very interesting because his family was religious, but maybe not that religious, but he went to like a religious college. When he started doing stand-up, he was still kind of from that culture, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. And I mean, he's not... He's not clean or dirty. He's like almost clean, mm. basically. You know, it's like kind of po- kind of positive, yeah. yeah. And we're just having fun, good time. But you know, he's gonna throw some curse words just to like you know mess with people's brains, right. and, you know that kind of thing. But uh, through this podcast, which it's been going for years now, uh, and I was listening when there were only maybe ten or so episodes, he went from still being like. Hey, I don't necessarily go to church or whatever, but you know, he's definitely like a God guy. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like going off into like who's the guy, Ramdas, you know, territory, uh-huh. you know, Hindu and what, and like just kind of maybe even being an atheist to like coming back towards the I can't remember his name, but the guy that wrote Love Wins. He's sort of connected. I th- I feel like is to it Richard Rob Bell? Bell. Yes, that's yeah. it. Okay. Uh, and that and so like that's a favorite guy of his. Right. Uh, and so he's had that him on. In fact, they actually did a tour together. They they had a combination where you know it's like the Rob Bell part is fairly service oriented. People are coming to see him, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's what he does. He's still a minister, or right? Of right. Sorts. And so and it, but then there would also be the Pete Holmes part of it, and it's like. Hey, this isn't church, you know, and yeah. he's doing his thing. So anyway, he had Richard Rohr on at least once. I went, like, to his site, and then they were like, hey, do you want emails <laughs> or whatever? And I was like, sure, why not? And then it's like every day or something. <laughs> I mostly have read none of them. I mean, I mean, like, it's just like it's just something that, like, comes yeah. in. But every once in a while, I'll click on, and I'll be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I'll just say, without addressing the essay specifically that my perspective on Roar is not so much like how progressive he is or whatever, but is like, oh, okay, well, he's still definitely, I mean, he's talking about Christ in every email, so it's not like he's, you know, way off the, hey, it's whatever kind of thing. Yeah, um, I think he's made it clear, in fact, I've heard him say Mm -hmm. that he was not a progressive, he's not a deconstructionist, which is part of the progressive Christian mm-hmm. movement. But he he's more like just trying to this is how you can relate to this material in this world that we yeah. live in. In a strange way, even though I think most traditional Christians would find Rohr probably a heretic at this point. <laughs> some, some, sure. Given some of the things he said. Of course, I'm sure he would disagree, but 
he, he seems to at the same and even though progressive Christianity has definitely become a heresy to probably most traditional Christians or historical Christians however you want to put it I get a sense that Rohr is trying to evangelize to them, to the progressives. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even though... That's what I feel like. Yeah, He's kind of preaching to that choir, right. which he doesn't claim is his choir, right. but nevertheless, he has to turn around to preach to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, imagine like two congregations joining, which happens yeah. in, in the, you know, especially in rural areas. Sure. There'll be like associated churches, even shared churches, mm-hmm. like AME Zion might... Because uh, this was the case at a church where my dad was a minister. Uh, mm-hmm. There was Marvin, and then there was like the AME Zion Church that also used the the, the facility. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's like there could be uh, a choir, yeah. <laughs> right? That's not his choir, right? But that he still has to. Yeah, maybe that better cause analogy. Because that, that's because preaching to the choir is like you don't do that because. Turning around, you're turning your back to the regular audience. Right. The analogy is yeah. that this is people that are with you. Yeah, I've heard the British say preaching to the converted. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, basically, you're, you're they're saying one. something you already know. Because otherwise, the choir hasn't heard the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but they're just gonna amen with everything you right, say anyway. Right. Right. Maybe the better analogy is a preacher who's like, he's in the middle, you know, where you have the the congregations expecting to hear certain things, Uh the choir who's expecting to hear certain things, and he can't make either of them happy, probably. Right, right. So, which, I feel like I'm probably in the same boat as he is, even though I come to different conclusions. So, Mm -hmm. just to give you some background, I did go to school for uh, religious studies, Uh and I am uh, pro-biblical criticism, which... I know that a woman who's kind of taken upon herself to take on Roar and a lot of progressives where she thinks they're wrong, a lady named Alyssa Childers, I don't think she, in fact, I know she's not too keen on the biblical criticism. Also, she argues for the inerrancy of scripture, which Uh, I I have a more nuanced view on that. Sure. So I'm sympathetic with Rohr. And actually, as I said in the essay, I I do appreciate him at times. So in regards to the actual quote, uh, what's your opinion on that? So he's coming basically from the perspective of like, kind of like what you say in the essay, that he's got some info. Hey, it's always going to be a mystery. I have that understanding of, on my own, Mm -hmm. of... These are the complexities that how would you be able to wrap your head around something that's the idea of which is outside of what we're in, which is, you know, the universe. We believe God's in the universe as well. However, as far as from a like scientific or atheistic or whatever perspective, when it comes to going like, oh, okay, well, what made the universe? How would we be able to experiment with that in the first place? Yeah. You, you know, because we're in the thing. The thing can't discover what it is. We it, can't get outside the right, universe. Is that right, what you're saying? Right, basically. Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. Or we, and, can't, we certainly can't get outside of the whole God and see the whole God. Right, for right. Sure. Yeah. So, and considering the, the speck that we are even just in the mm-hmm. earth. Uh, yeah, of course, it doesn't make any sense that we'd be able to wrap our heads around. Right. I feel like that does add up whether or not it semantically or logically holds up. Because I, I feel like he's talking about, he, he speaks to this a lot, you know, dualism, non-dualism. Mm-hmm. And, of course, language is 
especially English, is dualistic. I don't know if there's anything that's less so. I mean, I know there are, but, you know, it's like the sentence structure itself is just like predicate subject, and it's got to have these things going on in order for a sentence to be made. So Mm -hmm. it's like there's always these complications where it's like if you... And this is why I have a problem with specifically not... Maybe not biblical deconstructionists, but like just going off of like, say... Derrida or whatever where it's like he's taking French this language that hasn't had all the influence necessarily that English has had if it makes sense that like French like really needed deconstructing because it had become like really uptight and you couldn't understand anything by bringing in words whereas English it's almost just not even English hardly it it is. I mean, you know, British people understand us, but uh, <laughs> barely. You know, but but yeah, it's like there's so many influences, not in structure of sentence, but there's yeah. so many other linguistic influences that it doesn't need the deconstructing so much right. because it's already kind of programmed in there. Right. Uh, it's, it's already in, in the modern form. Right. Do you think it's just poorly worded? Like, that's not what he meant. Mm. It seems like he's advocating that God should always remain a mystery. That suggests you shouldn't even, like, bother. No, I don't think that. But I think in terms of, like, if you're getting a headache because you can't hold these ideas in your head or that, like, contradictions are a problem are too problematic, then step back and just allow the mystery, mm-hmm. uh, as it were in that movie A Serious Man uh, it's just a Coen Brothers movie it's not one of their best ones but it's, it's got some interesting things in it and particularly existentially because it has like this thing of fate where he's trying to decide whether to like allow this student to bribe him his family's from Korea and so it's set back in the 60s and so he goes to talk to the, to the father and the father and he's trying to go he's like so, did he leave me this money? Because he just, like, finds this envelope of money. And he's like, no, no money. But he's like, but accept, accept the, that money. <laughs> you know, he's trying right. to get him to accept the money that he's yeah. not admitting to giving him. And he's like, it doesn't make any sense. He's like, accept the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Culture clash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I think it's like, if you're getting worked up and getting a headache about this thing... It's okay to go ahead and accept the mystery. Right. But I don't think he's saying, don't bother with some journey to discover more. And I certainly wouldn't agree with that if he was. It does seem he, as I said, is probably highly sensitive or annoyed by, and rightly so, this is why I agree with him, where (laughs) I've sat through plenty of sermons or known preachers that nothing was a mystery to them. You know, they they knew everything about God, mm-hmm. or they said, or the, you know, the Bible was clear, mm-hmm. black and white about everything. Right. And as I argue, there there is stuff that's very clear I, in my mind. The Bible, I guess, there's some mystery to it, but the whole. If it weren't in chronological order, it'd be a lot. It wouldn't be as clear. But you know, it's like once once you get to Christ, then of course you still have Acts, but then after that, it's not really narrative. You know, it's more like. Here's what's going on. At the very point that it becomes a little more straightforward, because I feel like, especially with the gospel, you automatically have this, well, we can 
look back a little bit now at the law and what legalism means mm-hmm. in regard to that. After that, the epistles then kind of a little bit rein in this, but it's also even more like, oh, but a guy just wrote that. That's that's a dude's idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully very inspired right. by the spirit. You've got issues in between the people that wrote the epistles. And when you say a guy, and again, right, right. <laughs> I, I were talking about St. Paul. Or Peter, James, yeah. and... Yeah, yeah some yeah, other yeah. guys. Yeah, sorry. And I bring this up in another essay that's coming down the pike, but uh, this criticism, some of the progressives, especially like the red-letter uh, Christians, as they're called, that Paul has influenced Christianity more than Christ has because his letters are so popular and they're often quoted, sometimes more so than the Gospels. Mm. And in the spirit of not making the Bible an idol... Uh-huh. Should we take pause when we read Paul and know that he is a human being? Mm. It was uh, he's flawed, right. just as much as we are. You know, he's not Christ. Uh, should we take with a grain of salt some of the things he says? And he even I know sometimes in his letters he clarifies, "This is just what I say." Then he'll say, "But this is what Christ said," or, or, right, or something right, right. to that effect. Right. But he doesn't say that all the time. When some people want to say, like, "Hey." Mm-hmm. That sounds like his opinion. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like Christ. So here's where, because I don't, you know, attend a church or anything like that. It, I think it's fairly easy to read the Bible if you're not taking every like, no matter where it is. You know, a lot of people are like, every sin is the same, and clearly not every Bible verse is exactly on par with every other Bible verse. Yeah, it's funny you (laughs) say that about the sin thing, because this comes up a lot. Like, they'll say, like, all sin is sin and kind of equal. But we all know that it's a lot easier to forgive a guy in church who (laughs) may have, you know, wrote a a bum check or, you know, ran a stop sign, as opposed to a guy who molested one of the teenagers in the church. Right, right. So that idea is basically, to me, it's just absolutely non-Christ I mean you know when he stops the woman from being stoned or you know stops the crowd from stoning her not through anything other than basically uh, logic or you know (laughs) uh, it's like he's going yeah look it's not the same it's you know that this this uh, punishment Yes, it's the law. Yes, it's from the Bible. But it's like, you've got something going on in your minds and hearts is is what is kind of implied. But there's also the implication that you shouldn't stone somebody for being a prostitute. Right. Or, you know. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So for, like, anyway. you give a contrast. Of course, the, the picture is, he's, he's got a, a whip and he goes into the temple and mm-hmm. starts, like, uh, kick and tail and right. t- turn over tables because these people have, are exploiting uh, using God's name for to make money right and so that is definitely a punishment you know right. uh, meted out was that already part of the law or you know was like I don't think it was a law against it yeah although the spirit of the law does violate because right. it's, it, it, if you go back to the commandment that mm. that's not not use the Lord God's name in vain doesn't necessarily mean like 
saying something like, uh, well, golly gee, you know, yeah, th- yeah. that kind of thing is saying, like using God's name for vain purposes, mm-hmm. you know, to basically how people say, well, God told me this or right, right. Uh, God says that, you know, uh, you got to join my cult and, uh-huh. and, be, and be my sex slave or something. But, right, right. But there's an example of Jesus giving out a punishment that seems, at least in his mind, uh-huh. you know, just to, to the mm-hmm. crime. So I don't, right. I don't think he's waving away our, our conception of certain things do need to be punished to be right. prevented. Or, I don't know. That, yeah, that's yeah. another podcast probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But certainly, I would think both of those, they're putting the idea that basically is fleshed out later on in the epistles because it's not so clear-cut just from the gospel that like oh the law is a whole different thing now and, and you know like with the, the diet the you know the western diet i mean they've taken a lot and this is actually from peter i think where it's like you know peter's the one that was saying hey you shouldn't be eating uh some of this stuff because you know yada yada you know, the law, the, Torah, the, yeah. the law, and then you know he has the. I think it's the dream where he's mm-hmm. you know called up into heaven and basically God kind of gives him what for about you know <laughs> if I've blessed something mm-hmm. and you know then it's blessed. Yeah, that and tr- so and that so, trumps the pagan right, uh, right. And so blessing. it's really it's kind of interesting. Oh, that's what it was. They were eating after stuff that had been blessed. By the by, the pagans, yeah. right? So, but anyway, and that is, I think, used for like pork doesn't matter because we prayed over it. That's kind of an interesting one to me. It's like those were like really big deals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how people lived for hundreds of years, right. thousands. But if we go back to the fact, and of course, the name of the essay is that to which we are tethered. Like, what are uh-huh. we? What are we tethered to? And and again, I'm going to flesh this out more as we get along. But mm. I make one point that. We, we know at the very least that the Ten Commandments and the two greatest commandments, according to Christ, mm. are something we should be tethered to, and they're pretty clear-cut. Right. Because there's probably some nuances about certain things. or so, You can debate about some of them, I suppose, exactly right. what that means, but you know, dietary laws aren't a part of any of that. Right. I get the sense that Jesus came to reset the law mm-hmm. back to its original spirit. Well, so, so Rob Bell uh, speaks about how you know the original like Deuteronomy law or whatever mm-hmm. uh, Levitical and all that was actually a progressive document. A lot of the things were about restraint, mm-hmm. but an eye for an eye isn't about. Hey, if somebody takes your eye, you go get their eye. <laughs> <laughs> you go get it. You know, uh, it, it's like you don't kill their whole family. Right, right, you, right. You yeah, know, that's a restraint, and all, and like. Uh, when you take over, a, you know, when you pillage a village or something, yeah. you know, uh, you kill a guy and then his wife is left. You don't just like kill her and yada yada. You give her a chance to, you know, become part of the, the family right. or something like that. Yeah, which in the ancient world, that, again, I know Chinese history more than mm-hmm. anything, but that was just part for the course. If you killed your enemy, you took out his entire family, kids and all. I mean, a lot of that was out of fear that someone would come out of the woodwork later. Right. But I get what he's trying to say. Like it, it probably moved things forward a little bit. To give you a point where in the American South, when uh, the slaveholders were trying to biblically justify Mm. holding slaves, and they would say, well, hey, you know, there's slavery in the Bible, and there's no explicit law against it. But as a lot of the folks in the abolitionist movement pointed out, said, well, yeah, but in the Deuteronomy laws, there are prescriptions about how you're supposed to treat your servants 
and that's what they kind of translated as slave, at least to the slave owners. And they got all kinds of rights, and yeah, all yeah. kinds of rights that, that blacks in the American South did, certainly did not have. And there was, just because someone might have been your servant or slave, didn't mean that they didn't have... Humanity. Uh, yeah, exactly. In fact, you could, I can't remember the exact laws, certain violations of a servant or slave's uh, rights as dictated by the Torah, you know, there would be punishment for the, for the master mm. if we followed what it said. So, yeah, it's right. Even though some of those laws seem like a burden to us, especially the dietary laws and some of the uh, sexual laws, which are the, probably the, the things that are, people are more upset about now, you know, for the time, man, they really help things a lot. And we, we just have lost context. So Roar, in this quote, uses the term comfort zone. So you had some thoughts about that. Right. You know, just in kind of picking it apart or, you know, uh, sectioning off his terminology, I feel like that, because it's open-ended, that can, uh, you know, bring people back. That the progressive movement might seem to someone who's more traditionalist as, like, people trying to live with how, how they want to and also retain some you know spirituality but in a more mystical sense which to me doesn't sound terrible but you know in the way that it's worded I think it's it's just as valid to read that as something that could be uh, pulling people back towards scripture and or Christ or, or what have you in terms of like, hey, just because it's not in your comfort zone doesn't mean it's not from God. Yeah, and I get that concept that when humans get comfortable, things don't go well mm-hmm. in some respect. They miss something. Yeah. They, you know, they, yeah. they miss problems. Right. We need conflict and strife. Not that I think you should just go around punching people in the face to give people conflict. But, but yeah, a lot of times like a, a good forward step is preceded by a large backward step or some sort of right. uh, thing where it's like maybe maybe people thought that such and such an idea was just obvious. It's, this is clear, such and such is bad, and it turns out there's a lot of people that don't really feel that way, and so there has to that has to be brought out in some way. In crisis, there is opportunity. I've said that quote yeah. a million times. But I get a sense of roar... Again, reading his other writings, one of his axes to grind is with conservative political mm. Christianity, which the stereotype is, and I, I feel like the stereotype is probably just as unfair and hateful as someone who stereotypes black people or uh, Jewish people or, or any group. You know, that people have this idea in their mind. So the idea that when you read enough of these folks' writings, the progressives or mm-hmm. folks that roar, it's people who are... are kind of greedy and they live in a suburb where all the houses look alike they have their comfort zone they don't want anybody strange in their neighborhood they don't want immigrants you know which is really a gross characterization especially if you've been to any suburb they're full of immigrants and they're full of right, right you right. know mixed couple i mean and yeah, i live in a really nice neighborhood that is thought of by the rest of nashville as like that's where like it's like down towards the end of nolensville okay yeah that's and, a very hispanic area yeah, yeah 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 it's nice too yeah hispanics live in the nice houses right <laughs> <It's just Yeah>. like, <laughs> and roar has said this some but there's other progressives that have really made this connection between racism 
and mm. you know the evangelicals or, or historical Christianity, right? But and we don't have to get into that today or what. Well, it's but. largely geographical, I think, too. I mean, I can say for sure I don't necessarily feel comfortable going to my parents' church. They live in Crossville, Tennessee. I mean, they go to a Baptist church, but I think it's maybe the most evangelical, apart from like non-denominational churches or something like that. <laughs> Uh, it's somewhat evangelical. They're somewhat comfortable with that, even mm-hmm. though they also have Methodism and Episcopalian in their background. But anyway, but Crossville was like a sunset town back in the day. Where, oh, yeah. You know, so whereas like, you know, you didn't want to be there if you're African American, and so, I mean, there aren't very many in that town. I mean, it, I mean, it's less than like five percent mm-hmm. or something. So it's like. There are things where it's like, yeah, that that has some truth to it historically, and also because it's still not that legally it's still like that, mm-hmm. but it's still basically like that mm-hmm. socially. It's people don't want to come. Well, let's go check out Crossville now right. that it's you know the twenty first century. Right. So. Well, and those stereotypes still reside. In fact, my wife and I were living in Nashville, and she got a job offer in a tiny town in Kentucky. And my wife is black. And all our black friends said, oh, Kentucky, they're all racist. You know, they're all in the Klan. And she took the job and we moved up there. And it didn't take her long to figure out that that wasn't the case. And she started attending a Baptist church. And she's not the only person of color, but pert near. And uh, they were glad to have her. In fact, they've put her in charge of some stuff or on some committees or something. I think people are eager to prove that, hey, man, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that might have been our grandparents. Because, but. yeah, well, and, and I mean, a lot of times the things coexist, you know, even within a person. Everybody knows racism is bad. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, they might still hold ideas that are fundamentally, you know, bigoted or prejudiced yeah. in some way. But when it comes to, like, well, here's an opportunity, you know, to... To show your love, especially in the context of the church, yeah. as opposed to like the grocery stores, it is a little different. I I feel like that's a fairly common story in churches that don't have something weird going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have an experience where I went to a Free Will Baptist church mm-hmm. in the, you know in the mountains uh, right. where I went to high school, and I mean that yeah they were talking about curse of ham or you oh know, yeah it's yeah. just like whoa yeah. You don't mind conveying what your personal backdrop right, right. is and your whole take on all the the new trends in Christianity and that roar and the mm-hmm. progressives are a part of and and even the traditional, however you perceive them as well. Sure, sure. So, in a previous uh, kind of prologue conversation that we had, uh, I kind of mentioned a little bit of how I felt about belief because, you know, I've gone through my own. Uh, changes and whatnot, where and periods of transition where I was like, oh, kind of trying to try on atheism and just see how it felt. And I mean, I'm definitely someone who I'm almost obsessed with the ideas that I've always thought about. You know, when it comes to God and whatnot, and certainly not like 
a one-time rejection and then I don't think about it anymore. But in recent weeks and months, I've been trying to kind of look at, did I make certain uh, conclusions uh, that I still hold to that brought me to this point? And one that I thought about was, uh, had to do with belief, that a lot of church communities, Christianity is for the most part based on profession of faith. And, and belief and I think that's the one thing where I'm like it seems to me like Christ's work had to do more with a very specific thing that perhaps the be- full benefits of would need belief would need faith but that would ultimately uh, exist without that so for example uh if you don't, for whatever reason, believe in the Revolutionary War, that it happened, or, you know, this kind of thing, it doesn't put you under British rule. You're still a free U.S. citizen, even though you have crazy beliefs. (laughs) Uh, But that you might not act as freely. Uh, And there's a benefit to belief, but that not necessarily a requirement. You know, that's fairly heretical but (laughs) at the same time as I approach Christ and the and the Bible I go okay it's okay for me to not believe or like like I don't have to have a profession of faith to get nourished from that or or benefit and not just like you know this world benefit like I I definitely think about like hey what if this is how it goes what if Jesus is really sad that I don't go, oh, Jesus is real Mm -hmm. in my heart. I feel like what I was brought up with as a kid is still with me. And I just have kind of parted ways with the groups Mm -hmm. that profess faith. I'm not saying that like, oh, I'm definitely still a a Christian, but but I also am not like, I'm definitely not one because, and you know, it's not because I'm scared of hell. I think that's the main thing I want to point out. Like, I don't not profess atheism or agnosticism, which, I mean, that's basically a correct labeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever anyone thinks of the label uh, is that I don't know what the answers are, mm-hmm. and I don't think I really can. I, I'm pretty sure I would have to just go, Almost like signing a confession that I didn't do in order to get out of jail. Right. Like, oh, hey, we'll let you go if you just say you killed this guy or something, you know what I mean? Which is a terrible analogy. Well, what you're saying is similar to what I've heard. (laughs) And it didn't make sense to me until I had, again, went to live in another culture, which was not under the influence of, you know, thousands of years of of Judaism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And almost exactly what you said, even someone who today is an atheist or agnostic or whatever and they think religion is silly you know can't escape the society and the values that both of those religions have uh, created or set up mm-hmm. and even this like the social justice movement for example mm-hmm. and yeah. even the humanists before yeah. them mm-hmm. even though they claim not to have a faith they will say they do have high moral ideas mm-hmm. and some re- acknowledge the history that yeah okay we did get these 
ideas from Judaism and Christianity. Right. But some are like, nah, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> we don't need them. We don't need that backdrop. We can have those uh, treating others as you want to be treated ideas without... Even, even Nietzsche. Nietzsche uh, acknowledged that yeah. the ruins or whatnot of, you know, Christianity or whatnot, that had to be used in order to build up some sort of new moral thing. To sound like a broken record, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, a lot of uh, people with grand ideas like that who had no limits to what they could do, and I think of, again, China, I think of the Soviet Union, I feel, uh, any right. number of countries, right. because there was a morality in a sense of justice to what, at least how they started, what they were going to do. They were going to remake society and make it, in essence, a love your neighbor as yourself required by law <laughs> by force of the gun uh-huh. in theory mm. and the the consequences were so disastrous and of course when people tell that story most people leave out the atheism they leave out the the good ideas and now they're just saying well he you know stalin was a madman and maybe he hijacked something that might have had good ideas and then that's true but the, the problem started before him sure so as someone you say you're basically an atheist and you recognize though the good of what you came out of and you recognize that's still part of you right do you feel like say you have children mm. and you don't raise them to be christian right do you feel that that will transfer those values or or do you plan to transfer the values without transferring the the faith part yeah that's an interesting one yeah if i were to raise kids they'd have to have some experience with uh churches i mean even if it was only because my parents were like they're gonna go to church while they're staying here or something like that yeah Yeah. if i thought it was evil or something then that would be a a whole different thing but i mean there's so many people where it's like yeah my my dad went to church i don't think he really believed anything or you know yada yada that's kind of a un-american tradition in in its own way is is and of course this whole discussion is about progressive Christianity. So it's like, there's definitely a place for that, for like a community kind of thing. Because I, I also, and lots of atheists see the problem of like not having like a thing to go to mm-hmm. and uh, a way to build community uh, that that isn't just like, well, we're not those guys. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is how we identify, not right. them. <laughs> And I don't mean to be hypercritical, but yeah. I don't know if you've ever spent time in any quote-unquote community center. Mm-mm, not really. They're pretty dismal as far as yeah. like connections. In my experience, what ends up happening is people who don't want to bother with their kids will drop their kids off of these places, and right, they end up being right. it's like a babysitting service. Right. And so they serve a purpose, and I and I think that it's good they're there at least. Ho- hopefully, they're treated. You're saying like just a public, not like a Unitarian Universalist, but like. A, but just like a neighborhood center. Yeah, community center. Right. Because yeah. they always have good intentions. Like we're going to bring the community together. But no one's as excited about that idea as the people who run the thing. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. even the people who are just dumping their kids off there could care less. You know, right. if, if they right. weren't there, they'd drop them off at the library all day. Yeah. And this is a, another thing that yeah. a friend of mine worked worked at the library oh, said that, yeah. they, that people just dumped their kids there I rem- I knew the library pretty well but I had never gone there like right after school uh-huh. and middle school and I like and it was like you know this is back in latchkey time yeah uh, you know so it was just like well today you're just gonna go to the library because right. I can't pick you up or whatever right. it is and so uh, I went in there and it was just like whoa it was like 
It was, you know, an extension of school. Yeah. Or there was so many but with no there. adult supervision. <laughs> right. Well, my, and so, my friend who worked at the library, and I know we're going off on a tangent, his biggest beef with that, besides the fact of bad parenting, uh, was the fact that sometimes the parents wouldn't even be there to pick the kid up before the library closed at 8 or 9 o'clock, and, wow. they, and they'd have to sit there and wait, because you can't just throw a kid out in the street, you know? Right. But anyway, my point is, how do you think that you could create the same kind of community that religions seem to create, regardless mm-hmm. if they're mm-hmm. Christian or Buddhist or whatever, without this faith in a higher being that seems to, to be, if you're looking for a formula that works... I feel like because I took some religious studies when I went to UNC Charlotte, which I'd love to rant a little bit on that because it's close to home, but uh, I actually gleaned a lot from it. I mean, I I was totally open at that point. You know, I just wanted to learn about the different things. It was a little heavy on Islam, and I was hoping, because it was just like, hey, it's Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism, and... it almost seemed like they were just like whatever was Buddhism. Like Buddhism was last, and it seemed like it spent most of the time on Islam. And then like, there I couldn't ask like any critical questions. Uh, not not I couldn't ask, but they were answered in such a way that it was just. Well, I would just be like, hey, it says here that the Jews worship Ezra. What does that mean? You know, it's like I don't, I don't think they do. And it's just like, well, if uh, you know, if Alice you know, said it, then it's true. Or kind wow. Of, kind of th- he phrased it like they would say or something. Wow. Not like he's saying that. Yeah. So he but, didn't have any criticism right, of right. Islam. Right, okay, ba- basically. Yeah. And also, you know, was of the mind to not tell us what his beliefs were at all. And even though I felt like his knowledge of Hinduism was like, he must practice that or something. Because he come in with six arms. <laughs> But so, so anyway, like I, f- I feel like learning about all that stuff is really great, and not in a way that puts down Christianity because it's ubiquitous. Even though it, in a college study, it makes sense that we're not just going to learn about Christianity because you can do that anywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in America. But so I, I feel like I would have been benefited by learning even more than I already have earlier. So building a community yes. around that is would be like a learning center uh, kind of community. And, and yeah, it would probably have teachers that believed what they were teaching about. I mean, I, th- I think that's probably necessary. Like somebody that doesn't have any faith isn't going to be the best purveyor right. of, of what these beliefs are. I'm not sure that I think holding to only one of them you know, the Dalai Lama has been like, hey, follow what your grandmother believed, because <laughs> otherwise your grandmother will be mad at me, or, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of yeah. idea. You know, it, it's a lot easier to understand the world that we live in, in the context of what we've grown up okay. being taught. I like everything you're saying, but it didn't answer my question, cause, okay. so, that, okay. so I do want to keep that. Okay. So I'll ask it again, exactly. Okay. Okay. So if you were to form a community center... Okay. And you wanted to do it without religion. Can a community have bonds without having a common religion? Yeah, I, I think that it's possible to teach children, I guess is what you're saying. Our connections are 
what we are humans and also like where we came from. See, here's the here's the thing. Okay. I didn't grow up in one place. So I've lived in Nashville ten years. It's twice as long as I've lived anywhere else in my life. Okay. So I don't have like this root system. I don't have like back home. Here's how things are. I mean, I do have a back home of where I went to high school, but I haven't been there in twenty years. Mm-hmm. And even in the context of we all went to high school together. They also all went to elementary school yeah. together. You know what, though? What you're saying is probably part of the, maybe the problem for community in general. And I'm glad you said that because, first of all, as Americans, it's in our DNA, as we right, say, right. to be on the road, uh-huh. to go to where there's opportunity, not to stay put and hope that something's going to get better. That's why, with the exception of the Native Americans, now, you know what, including them, because they moved around, too. Sure. They moved to where there was food. Right. The, you know, the Europeans that came here, they moved to get away from either persecution or they were kept in a class system, kept down, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the immigrants that are coming now are, are running from something terrible, generally. Right. So that's one of our commonalities. And so maybe that's why we don't have a sense of community, except for, like, maybe um, portable community. So, for example, mm-hmm. me and you live in two different states, but I feel like we have a connection I don't think it'll ever be broken. Of course, that maybe who knows what you're about to say in the next <laughs> ten minutes. But you know, what I'm saying we're we can pick up where we left off. Sure, yeah. And yeah. I think that's become the American way. Some people will blame capitalism. I, I think it's kind of a little uh, simplistic. But <laughs> well, I think it's uh, I think it's one of the huge benefits of social media, the discovery of that. Because my parents also moved around a lot, mm-hmm. and I it turns out I took on a lot of the characteristics that I was like. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, like, let friends just go away and then not talk to them for a long time. But it did happen. And then social media comes along and kind of points out, not at the beginning. At the beginning, it was like, well, you can reconnect. And then 10, 15 years later, it's like, you could ignore people right in front of your face. (laughs) You know, it's just like... Yeah. But also, like, you know, the opportunity is just, like, right there... And I still don't take it. And it's like, mm-hmm. even now, it's still missing from my life to reconnect with people that when I had a, like a kind of a personal break and I dropped out of UNC Charlotte, I didn't make the extra effort mm-hmm. to retain friendships. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a regret. conclusion like do you have any final thoughts about what we've been talking about this entire time right yeah or what we meant to talk about right 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 (laughs) i will say that i agree it's it's tough to use moral guidelines that don't have any authority in them but i'm also not convinced that it's not just a pretend game as far as like i mean you asked if I'm building the communal center, I can't be like God said to, you know, and, and have conviction about yeah. that. I feel like there's a certain, like, even though it's it seems to be pitted against science, religion is that there is like a kind of a tried and true when people point out the commonalities um, among religions. It's not to put down necessarily or to just say religion's fine in a general sense, but specifically is bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, 
But it's to go, yeah, there are things that are kind of within us, sort of in our DNA, like like you were saying about Americans, that it makes sense that you wouldn't treat someone how you wouldn't want to be treated. Yeah. That, and that it, it makes sense to attempt to put yourself in someone else's right. shoes and turn around and go, how would I feel? And that that ability that is, as far as we know, uniquely human, is God's gift. It's a little bit like Ayn Rand trying to create her philosophy without religion. And mm-hmm. she, in so many words, said, you know, because she was an atheist, it's in your best interest, because she was all about self-interest or best mm-hmm. interest, mm-hmm. to treat others as you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Just from a... Sure. You know, think about it. Like, you're, if you're nice to people, they're generally going to help you when you're in need or you, right. that's how you build friendships. You know, it can help you get a job. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of a cynical way of looking at things, but... Well, yeah, and I mean, I was already thinking earlier as I, like, took out the trash because I didn't want to make my roommate mad mm-hmm. that, that, that it's like, yeah, every act has the possibility of having a quote-unquote ulterior motive. You can have good thoughts and not do good works. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like the James argument that brother be well isn't good enough for yeah. the guy that you know is cold or whatever <laughs> be yeah. warm yeah. <laughs> you know? be so, warm yeah. my friend yeah, yeah yeah so works are actually pretty important yeah uh and ulterior motives yeah. like this is what god wants or god will look well upon me or favor me in some way mm. it might not be the best source but it's not that bad either if you're doing good That wraps it up for now. We're going to have some other voices on here soon to give their views. And with that said, if this is a subject you feel super strong about one way or another and want to join in the discussion, by all means, shoot us an email via spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. Also, if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you're still in a theological mood, but you look through our list of episodes and wonder to yourself, antique car restoration, Mexican singing crickets, ancient Chinese literature... What's going on with this weirdo podcast? Well, In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is all over the place, subject-wise. So let me direct you to a few episodes somewhat related to our topic of today. There's episode 180, where me and many friends indulge in philosophical discussions using a quote by Richard Rohr himself as the catalyst. Also, there's episode 108, where a friend of mine in China discusses his conversion to Christianity, the Jews of Shanghai during World War II, underground Chinese hip-hop, and other topics. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 